Thank you, brother. Can you hear me? I might still I might get a little loud. Just let me know. You can only be too soft. Okay. Well, sorry my family couldn't come, but my dad came and he's gonna make sure that I don't give you anything other than what the word teaches. Okay? And so uh, he's going to be watching me like a hawk. Uh, we thank you for allowing Brother uh, Doug to come to to Miami. He did an outstanding job, and uh, you know, we thank you for that. We find ourselves in John chapter five and John chapter six. There are many, many details in these chapters, especially chapter six. Uh, course we will not be able to go through every detail or every lesson that we can extract from these two chapters but we want to get a good grasp of what is going on here's a question for you do you follow Jesus ask yourself that I assume that most of us in here do but if you don't this lesson is going to give you Uh, more than enough reasons to do so. But for all of you who do follow Jesus, here's a question you need to ask yourself throughout this lesson. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Because there's actually wrong ways to follow Jesus and there are right ways. There are wrong motives and there are right motives. John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 is going to help us sort this out. These two chapters are going to help us answer the question, Why do I follow Jesus? You see, the purpose of John's account of the gospel is to magnify Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. Okay, And it magnifies Christ, or Jesus, as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is the Anointed King, Priest, and Prophet. He is the one that we should follow. John chapter 5, we have a miracle that leads to what looks like a courtroom scene. And then chapter 6, another miracle that leads to a series of discussions. And as we consider the evidences and the discussions, then we have to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus for the right reasons? We come to chapter 5. The third miracle that John records, the healing of a paralytic, the paralyzed man. And as one reads the first nine verses, what we find here is a very comforting scene. Jesus heals this man who has been unable to walk for 38 years. 38 years. And for all this time, no one helped him. That's what the text brings out. Not only this, not only does this account show the compassion of Jesus, but it shows his power. This healing went instantly. Okay? Think about this. 38 years without being able to use your leg muscles. The leg muscles would have atrophied by this time. If you don't use a muscle, you begin to lose that muscle. 38 years, this man's legs would have been gone. 
And so, this is not Jesus coming to this man, getting his adrenaline uh, all hyped up. He's not getting him all uh, hyped up and then he walks a few feet. This is a full reconstruction of the muscles. And so we see the power of Jesus, that He is the Son of God. Read verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And so, Jesus is who He claimed to be. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. But did you know that a person's heart can be so hardened that not even a miracle can convince. You know, some people out there say, well, just show me a miracle, and then I'll believe. Well, not everyone believed, even when they saw Jesus do a miracle. But you see, the problem was not the miracle. The enemies of Jesus, who we're about to see, they believed it was a miracle. So what was the problem? Notice verse 9 again. And that day was the Sabbath. Ah, there's the problem. You see, the Jews at this time made their man-made traditions and they connected them with the old law, Moses' law. And they understood that this was a miracle, but they couldn't let go that it was done on the Sabbath. Look at verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Look at verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. God instructed the Israelites, the Jews, to, labor, to rest from their labors. Where did God prohibit healings on the Sabbath? They were to rest from their labors, not from their compassion. Not from their compassion, especially to those who were sick. In other places we learn that they were ready to help their animals if they were in trouble, but not people. So what was the problem? It's the Sabbath. But there's a second accusation. The problem with the Sabbath is dealt in other sections. But there's a second accusation that's dealt with with the rest of the chapter. Let's look at this, the, this second accusation uh, based on verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So what does this lead them? Look at verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, there's the first one, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Notice that Jesus said, My Father. You'll see this all throughout Jesus' teachings. My Father. My Father. He does not say our Father. There is only one Father, but the relationship that we have with the Father is different than with Jesus. Jesus is the literal begotten Son of God the Father. There is a different relationship 
From the very time he was born, all the way till he was speaking, all the way up until now, he will always be the Son of God. And not only that, because of that relationship, he is equal with the Father. And this made the Jews angry. It made them angry. And so, what we have here are the Jews, they take this comforting healing scene and they turn it into a crime scene. Jesus is on trial now. You have not only broke the law, but you have blasphemed. Now, if those two things are true, then those two things are punishable by death. And so, Jesus is on trial here. And in verses 19 through 29, Jesus gives his response. It is as if Jesus is on trial and he, he takes the stand and he, he does not deny the charge that he is the Son of God. Actually, he elaborates more on it. He starts talking about his relationship with the Father and what he is going to do on Judgment Day. Oh, you can just see... Uh, the people would get more angry. Jesus is his own lawyer defending himself. He's elaborating more on the truth. But Jesus knows this is not enough. He knows it's not enough for him just to be the one defending himself. And so what does he do? He brings witnesses. I know that it's not enough. Look at verse 30 and 31. Verses 30 and 31. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, you've got to pay careful attention, because in another place, Jesus will say that it is enough, that it is true. But in this context, He's bringing out that it's not enough for them. Is not true for you that I just speak for myself. And so I got to bring witnesses. The first witness is actually the Father. Well, labeled as the word another in verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, at first glance, it seems that this first witness, labeled another witness, it seems to be John the Baptist, because the next verse says, You sent unto John. But after careful examination, that's actually not who he's referring to. When you read the little passage that talks about John the Baptist, he's using John the Baptist to move on to another witness. Okay, an even greater witness uh, there in verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. And so John is being used as to move on to the witness that Jesus is uh, talking about. There's another who bears witness of me. Look, notice the tenses. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness. That's present tense. He's bearing witness right now as I'm speaking. Notice John. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. He already did his work. Who's presently doing it? It's someone else, not John. John already did his work. And when he did his work, what does it say? 
He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light. Now, He already did His work. And His work was great. He was a lamp. He was a light. But as great as John was as a witness, I have an even greater one. So John is giving us more of a bonus for them. In chapter 5, Jesus is not looking down on John. But as great as John was, there's an even greater witness. He goes on to the second great witness, the works from the Father. Read verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. What did Jesus just do? He just healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. The works that I do bear witness of me. Don't take my word for it. Look what I have just done. And as we go through what Jesus does here, we notice that He is a master teacher. The very teachings will prove that He is the Son of God. It reminds me of John 7, 46, where the officers came to Him and then they came back and they said, No man ever spoke like this man. They didn't arrest Him because of His own teachings. How can we arrest Him? No man has ever spoke like Him. Proves that He's the Son of God. John chapter 10, verse 41 and 42 says, Then many came to Him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that He said about this man are true. And many believed in Him there. There is wisdom behind God's reason for not giving John the ability to do miracles. Because as they were transitioning from John to Jesus, they saw a clear difference. Jesus was performing outstanding miracles. And they remember what John said, and they saw the signs, and they put this two together, and they said, This is the Christ, and He is the Son of the living God. He is that prophet. John 3 and verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. How can anyone see these miracles of Jesus and deny that he is the Christ? It would have to be people with the hardest hearts. And that's who Jesus is talking to in John chapter 5. Verse 37 through 38, Jesus says, And the Father Himself, going back to the Father, who sent Me has testified of Me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form, but you do not, but you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent Him you do not believe. God literally spoke in the midst of thousands of, and he said in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, three times we have there that God said, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. But these rebellious Jews refused to hear that declaration. And so he moves on to the third witness, 39 and 40. We find the Scriptures bear witness. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. 
but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Jews, they, they held on to the Hebrew Bible as if that was what was going to give them salvation. Now, don't get me wrong and don't get Jesus wrong. Moses' law, the Old Testament, is a very good law. But its purpose was not to give salvation. Its purpose was to lead people to the one who would give salvation. And they failed to see that. And he brings it out. The scriptures bear witness of me. You want to hold on to this law, but the law is pointing to me. This is the witness. Galatians 3.24 Therefore the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. We're no longer under the Old Testament. We don't follow it. But we still use it. Because we see the prophecies all laid out, and then we connect it with Jesus, and we see that they were fulfilled perfectly, and that leads to faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says what? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing of the Word of God. The Old Testament is the Word of God. And when we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, and all how they're laid out, and then all how they're fulfilled, that creates faith. And so, yes... We need the Old Testament. Some people out there, they say, Well, y'all don't believe in the Old Testament. Or y'all don't follow the Old Testament. But we use it correctly the way God wants us to. And under this uh, scripture witness, we have Moses as an example. Read verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. In whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Oh, they read and studied Moses. But they failed to see what Moses himself said. Jesus said, I'm not accusing you. Long before me, Moses came, and there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, there Moses says, The Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him shall you hear. Drop down to verses 18 and 19. God told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. He's talking to Moses. He's going to be a prophet like you. And he says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then in the very next verse, Moses says, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Did you catch that? God says, If they don't listen to that coming prophet, that's Jesus, I will require it of him. You see, Moses is already accusing, through his writings, he's accusing those who will not hear. And Jesus is pointing to that. Moses already told y'all, if you don't hear, I will require it of you. The scriptures bear witness. Now, technically speaking, there are five witnesses. Some preachers will just lay it out as five. We have the Father. We have John the Baptist. We have works of Jesus. We have the Scriptures. And we have Moses. Okay? John is more of a bonus to move to the next witness. And Moses falls under the category of the Scriptures. But 
But ultimately, where do all these witnesses come from? They come from God the Father. Who declared Him as the Son? God the Father. Who sent John the Baptist? God the Father. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. Who does the works through Jesus? God the Father does it with Him. Who gave the Scriptures? God the Father. The Father is the greatest witness and they failed to see this. And so you know what Jesus does? As He lays out these witnesses, you begin to see something else unfolding in these Scriptures. He's turning the tables on them. Now, they accused Him of two things. He broke the Sabbath, and He's claiming to be the Son of God. He's blaspheming. Okay? Jesus laid out the witnesses that proves Him as innocent, but as He does that, He, he lists nine things that they are guilty of. And Jesus does not accuse them. He pronounces them guilty. Okay? Now I'm going to go through these a little quickly. So if you're writing notes, if you miss it, I'll give it to you later. Okay? There's nine things here. They would not hear. Verse 37. They would not believe. Verse 38. They would not apply. Verse 39 and 40. They would not honor. Verse 41. They would not love God, verse 42. They would not receive the Lord, verse 43. They received the glory of men rather than God, verse 44. They would not believe Moses, 45 and 46. They would not believe their own law, 47. Nine things they're guilty of. And so he turns the tables. Not only am I innocent... But you're guilty of these nine things. Now, aside from obeying Moses' law, how many people in the world today are guilty of these same things? This is why we need to evangelize. This is why we need to go out into the world and preach that Jesus is the Christ, and He's the Son of the living God. Now, we didn't go over the section of His first response about His relationship with the Father. But see, that wasn't enough for them. He gave the witnesses. But after looking at all the witnesses and all the proof, we go back to what Jesus said because now we know He is who He claimed to be. And since that's the case, everything that He said there in verses 19 through 29 are true. Now we're not going to go through everything, but look at verses 26 through 29. This is Jesus Himself. And this is what He is initially saying. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now you've probably heard these verses uh, talked about in other sermons. 
No, marvel not at this. Very familiar passage for us. But now you know the context it falls. You see, he says this. The sun is coming. There's going to be an hour where there's going to be a separation from the good and the evil. And then he says, well, I know that's not enough for you. Let me bring the witnesses. After hearing the witnesses, they should have went back to what Jesus said. That he's coming back to judge the world. This is why we follow Jesus. Because he is not only the Son of God, but he is the one who is going to save us. And he is going to separate those that have done good and those that have done evil. Remember the question why do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Him because you truly believe that He is the powerful Lord, the masterful teacher, the prophet that Moses was talking about, who will come back and judge the world and save His people? Or do you follow Him just in case all that is true? You know, I, I, met, uh, I met a lady, a co-worker of mine some time ago, and she told me, I follow Jesus just in case there's a God. After reading John chapter 5, just studying what we saw, do you think that would be enough? Do we follow Him because we know He is the Christ? That He is sent from God? Maybe you do follow Him. Maybe you do follow Him because you truly believe who He is. That's good. John chapter 6 is going to give us another test. Why do we follow Jesus? What does John chapter 6 have to teach us? The fourth miracle. Jesus feeds the multitude. Now, if you look at this, there are 71 verses in chapter 6. Okay, Even if I only focused on John chapter 6 the entire time, we would not get through everything. But we want to get a bird's eye view of what's going on here. Uh, so it can get you started in your study in this great chapter. Here we have the fourth miracle that John records, the feeding of the multitude. Verses 1 through 15. Look at verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And so Jesus, after this, he proves his ability to feed them. He takes five loaves, two fishes, and he feeds everybody with more to spare. Okay, great miracle. Notice this interesting detail in verse 10. Then Jesus said... Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. You know what's interesting about this verse? When he says, let the people sit. You know that word people translates the word which is a general term for humans. It includes men, it includes women, people of all ages, children, just the people. And then John adds this detail that with the men, the men sat down in a number about 5,000. 
that word men actually translates the literal word for males. There are 5,000 males. Think about that. It is very likely that the men sat separately, but whatever the case, there's 5,000 males. So if every, per every man had a wife, there is over 10,000 people here. Not including how many children there are. So over 10,000 people. That's how many people Jesus fed. That's astounding. Matthew 14, 21. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Okay? So we're talking about a huge crowd. But there's a specific purpose by listing the men being 5,000. As you study this particular account, not only here, but in all the Gospel accounts, you'll notice that there's, there's this tone of, of an army being formed. Okay, Mark chapter 6 and verse 40, So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. That ranks, that's a military term. Okay, There's groups, there's hundreds, there's fifties. They're organized. They're about to eat, but they're going to do it in an organized fashion. The men are together, and there are about 5,000. You know, in the first century Rome, in the Roman Empire, five to 6,000 men makes a legion. It is a group of men, okay? So there's a reason why this number is being talked about, okay? Now, when the people were fed, their reaction was understandable. Look at verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They thought about Moses. And you're thinking, well, they're finally getting it. We saw in chapter 5, those Jews didn't get it. These Jews are seeing, he is the prophet. He's that one Moses has been talking about. Where do their minds revert back to? Moses delivered the people from Egypt. Likewise, he can deliver us from Rome. And from other passages, you'll see that's what their mindset was. There seems to be this army forming. There's 12 disciples that take orders from Jesus. They can be the military leaders. What else do they need to do? Look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. That's a very important verse, brethren. You see, what do they need? They just saw in John chapter 5 that Jesus has the ability to heal a man. If a soldier gets hurt, he can be healed. Now they see that Jesus has the ability to feed a multitude of people. Did you know in the ancient times and even today that the strength of an army depends on how well they are fed? And they see this. What else do they need but to make him king? Did you know that this would have been a full revolt against Rome? You can't just make a king. You have to approve it by Caesar. Caesar makes the kings. And Caesar is the ultimate king. 
You can't just make another king. That would be a full revolt. But they're okay. He's the prophet. He's going to deliver us. You know, it's amazing to me that there are people today who still expect Jesus to be a literal king on earth and have a throne in Jerusalem. Now, brethren, I say this with all the love in the world because the scripture here does not teach that. Now, some people that, that believe that, they'll say, well, they rejected him as king. It didn't work the first time. They rejected him as king, but not at first. You see here, they wanted to force him to be king. Jesus had the greatest opportunity to be an earthly king here on earth and have his throne in Jerusalem. But what did he do? I'm going to go by myself. Why? Later on, we learn that his kingdom is not of this world. John 18.36 Well, we find ourselves in the fifth miracle. Jesus walks on the water. Many lessons we can gain from this, but for time's sake, we're not going to be able to talk about everything. But I want you to notice the time frame here. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> now when evening came, that's very important. This is the evening where he fed the people. Okay. Notice uh, there in verse 22. On the following day. Here we have time markers. Very important for us. I mean, very. A lot of lessons we can gain about Jesus walking on the water, coming immediately to the other side. But you notice the time frame here. This allows the people enough time to become physically hungry again. That's very important. Because it is at that time they seek Jesus again. The feeding of the 5,000 plus proved the power and compassion of Jesus. It proved He was the prophet they were waiting for. It was such an amazing miracle that all four gospel account writers talk about it. But John is the only one that will give the teaching that springs from that miracle. And that's what we find uh, here in this series of discussions about it, uh, verses 22 all the way to the end. Okay? John is the one that records this. And when Jesus provided the bread for them to eat, he set up the perfect occasion to teach the people that he is the bread of life. First discussion Jesus and the people, verses 22 through 40. Look at verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You see, Jesus automatically was there. It was a miracle the way he did it. And they were wondering, how did you get on this side? He doesn't answer that. Instead, he rebukes them. Look what he says in verses 26 and 27. 26 and 27, Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. These people only wanted to fill their stomachs again. Enough time has passed where they're hungry again, and they want it to be continually fed. They reverted back to what Moses did in the wilderness. Moses, in that time, the father, well, they would say it was Moses, but Jesus would correct them and point out it's the father. The father gave them manna from heaven, and they were continually fed. Well, there's this prophet like Moses here, and they knew he was the prophet, and so he's going to continually feed us, right? Jesus said, that's not how it's going to work. Do not labor for the food that perishes. One of the most important verses in this whole entire chapter is in verse 35. Verse 35 says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. If you have trouble with anything in this chapter, more than likely verse 35 is going to help you out. Okay, Here we have one of the seven I am statements from that John records. I am the bread of life. He says it again in verse 48 and verse 51. It points to who He is and what He provides. The people wanted Jesus to provide manna from heaven like Moses did, verse 30 and 31. Okay, But Jesus corrects them. Connect verse 32 through 33 to 35. Okay, Let's read 32 and 33. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay? Now think about this. There's this true bread. This true bread is sent from the Father and is from heaven. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. So you know what He's teaching the people. If Jesus is that bread of life, He is that bread that is sent from heaven. What He's teaching the people through this is where He's from. His origin is from heaven. Okay? And this made the people angry, as we'll see in just a moment. In verse 35, we also have this twofold obligation to this true bread. Notice this come and believe. The command to come and believe appears numerous times throughout the second, the second half of the chapter. Okay? Keep that in mind. Come and believe. We now come to the second discussion, Jesus and the Jewish leaders, verses 41 through 59. Now, throughout this section, what he's going to do is emphasize those two truths, okay? The origin and the obligation. He is from heaven, he's the bread from heaven, and there's this obligation to this bread. Come and believe, okay? Okay, what about the origin? How did they react to this? Look at verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. See, they got it. They understood. But they didn't like it. 
What do you mean you're from heaven? They complained about this. Can you believe this guy? He's saying he's from heaven. What about the obligation? Look at verse 53 and 54. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. These Jews were so fixed on the physical. I mean, that's why they came to Him, right? They could not see the spiritual application to this. But did you know that this has already been explained to us in verse 35? What does it mean to eat the flesh and drink His blood? Come and believe. It's synonymous. Coming and believing is synonymous to eating and drinking. And both sets have the same results. Okay? Come and you shall never hunger. Believe in me and you shall never thirst. This also proves that it is not talking about the Lord's Supper. Jesus is not talking about the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about truly coming and believing. Okay? Jesus is talking about a life of service to Him. And we're going to see this more in just a bit. Now, a lifetime of service is going to include the Lord's Supper... But that's not the main point of the text. Okay? It's coming and believing. Also, Jesus is not teaching cannibalism here. Okay? He's not talking in literal terms. Did you know that eating the flesh and drinking the blood is such an absurd command? It's so absurd, physically speaking. There has to be a spiritual meaning to all of this. Why are they looking at this as physical? But you know what was really apparent to the people at this point? You know, Jesus is doing all this talking, and He still hasn't fed us. They're getting a little anxious. They're getting irritated. They're getting the point that Jesus is not going to feed them again. And what He is feeding them, which He's trying to get across, the spiritual words, they don't want this food. The hard-hearted Jews, they began to influence the very disciples of Jesus. In verses 60 through 66, we have the third discussion, Jesus and the disciples. Look at verse 60 of that section. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? That word understand, it can also be translated as hear. It does not have to mean hard to comprehend, okay, or hard to understand in that sense. If the disciples thought it was hard to comprehend, they would have simply asked Him, Jesus, what does this mean? As they did in other places. But they're, they're saying this because it's a hard teaching to accept. They see that the people are irritated. How can He say He's from heaven? And what do you mean we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood? Even though Jesus explained that already. It's hard to accept for them. They just wanted food. The disciples were getting, well, they're taking this as if it's a lie now. 
They're being tempted. Look at verse 61. When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, Does this offend you? Does this cause you to stumble? Other translations say. Cause to offend you or, or offend... Uh, excuse me. Cause to stumble or offend translates the word scandalizo, where we get scandal. Is this a scandal to you? Is this a lie? Verse 62, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. There it is. He laid it out as simple as can be. I'm not talking about the flesh. I'm not telling you to eat my flesh literally. The flesh profits nothing. My words... That's what Jesus is talking about. My words are life. And there in verse 61, excuse me, verse 62, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? If you have trouble with the teaching that I'm from heaven, what are you going to think when I ascend to heaven? That's basically what He's bringing out. But verse 63, that gives proof that He's not talking about something literal. Okay? Now, at this point, they understand He's not going to give us what we want. So what happens? Verse 66. One of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Brethren, how does all this apply to us today? Today, many people act just like these people here. There are non-members and members, and I'm talking about throughout the world, okay? There are non-members and there are members who we do not see for months and maybe even years until they need something from the church. Now, don't get me wrong and don't get the Bible wrong. This does not mean that we won't help anybody out. We will. And Jesus did. But at the same time, we're going to help people with their spiritual ailments as well. It is good to help people out with food. But what are we doing after that? What did Jesus do? He didn't just do benevolent works. That's good. Jesus did that. But it's not the only thing He did. We have to let people know, look, God knows the heart. Psalm 44, 21. God knows the secret things of the heart. Acts 15, 8. God who knows the heart. God knows what goes on in our minds and our intentions. God knows the heart. Do you want Jesus' teachings or do you want what the church provides you? I once talked to a fallen away member somewhere else back in Texas. And I asked him, why did you leave the church? Why did you fall away? Why did you leave God? One of the reasons he told me was... Well, you know, the elders, 
They wouldn't pay for my utilities anymore. That reason and the other reasons he gave had nothing to do with spiritual matters. He was so focused on what he should get out of church rather than thinking, what can I give back to God? Are any of us like that? Sometimes you'll hear visitors say, or sometimes members will fall in this trap, well, they'll come to worship and they'll leave, well, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, of course not. You're supposed to come and give it to God. Worship is about coming to the Father and giving Him the praise, giving Him what He deserves. And yes, you'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied because God is pleased or was pleased. The question should not be, what did I get out of worship? The question should be, was God pleased with my worship? Are any of us guilty of that? Why am I here? Why do I follow Christ? Is it, is it to come and serve Christ or is it to serve self? Now we will be satisfied when we do it the way God has prescribed. But when self-satisfaction is your first aim and your sole aim, then you come to Jesus in vain. Too many people claim to follow Christ, but just like in the first section, they want Jesus to be their king, to do what they want. They want a certain kind of Jesus. They want a certain kind of king. But what did Jesus do to them? He departed from them. Jesus is going to be king, but he tells people what to do. They're not going to make, he's not going to be forced to be king. And then there's times like in the second section where people will leave Jesus because they don't want any of His hard teachings. How many people in the world say, Give me Jesus, but they don't want His teachings? The very teachings that talk about hell and judgment, oh, don't give me those. Those are hard to understand or they're hard to accept. Don't give me the teachings in Matthew 19 where it talks about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That's too hard. I mean, who can hear that? Well, don't tell me the, what Jesus says in Matthew 18 about withdrawing. Don't, don't tell me any of these hard teachings. Just give me Jesus. But Jesus is here saying that His words lead to eternal life. He's not just giving us busy work. Here's a question. Very important question. How do we know that this chapter does not teach a faith-only doctrine? Because someone will come and say, Well, I do come and I believe. And that's what Jesus wanted, right? He wanted, he wanted people to come and believe. These people that He rebuked, that He was teaching, did they not literally come to Jesus? Did they not believe that he was that prophet? You see? They came to him because they believed he was who he said he was. But when they got his teachings, then they didn't want it. See, they were still lacking something. He said, look, you came to me, you believe, but you need to come and believe. And they didn't get it. 
But how else do we know that this is not a faith-only doctrine? Because it would contradict other chapters where Jesus speaks. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 21. John 14, 24. John 5, 28, 29. Jesus wants us to do His will. He said that in other places. He's not going to contradict Himself in this chapter. But just like, or unlike people act with Jesus, trying to force Him, Jesus will not force us to obey. And this leads to the fourth discussion found with Jesus and Peter, 67 through 71. Notice what is said here, verse 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? See, He's opening up, up for them. He's not forcing them. He's giving them the option. Do you want to go away as well? And what did they say? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. He tells his disciples, Look, do you want to go his way as well? Peter says, No, you have the words of eternal life. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus points to one that will not follow. Judas. Jesus is not going to stop him. He's not going to force them to obey. It's all up to them. Aside from Judas, they did exactly what Jesus was aiming for. They truly came and they believed. They wanted His words. And all throughout you'll see that when Jesus gave hard-to-accept teachings, they still followed Him. When He gave hard-to-understand teachings, what did they do? Jesus, what does this mean? They asked for an explanation. This is what it means to come and believe. This is not a faith-only doctrine. It's about... Jesus who provides the words of eternal life, no matter how hard they sound, they are true. And so, what is the question? Why do I follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus to satisfy yourself or to satisfy Jesus? Jesus is the bread of life. Maybe you are following Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. Now is the time to make it right before He comes back. And friends, those of you who are here who are not Christians, Jesus is the bread of life. Now, does God bless us with food? Yes. But did you know that it does not matter how much you eat, it will always digest in the body and it will never come back. And no matter how much you eat physical food, your body will eventually die. But Jesus says, I got the words that will help you live forever. Do we want His teachings? 
Are you ready to come and believe? Are you ready to follow Him in the right way? If you are, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, the way people were converted, and Peter gives that gospel sermon, they heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, about His death, burial, and resurrection. And they believed it. They were cut to the heart. They believed. And in a roundabout way, they confessed, as was also done in Acts chapter 8. They asked, what shall we do? They understood it, and they made it known. And what did Peter say? Well, you don't have to do anything. You already believe. Peter didn't say that. They believed. They heard. They confessed that they believed. What did he tell them? Repent and be baptized for their mission of sins. Repent. Change your mind. That's what that word means. You change your mindset, which changes your lifestyle. And be baptized. Romans chapter 6, you come into the watery grave and you portray the gospel. You obey the gospel, Romans 10.16. And you come out a new creature, a new person in Christ. Romans chapter 6. If you're ready to do that, if you're ready to follow Jesus, come now as we stand and sing.